I had a very good time thinking about what I was going to talk about today um, because these are some of my favorite things to talk about. And uh, I wanted to start with talking about equanimity. That's what this retreat is about. I wanted to give a moment of shout-out to my friend Gil Fransdahl, who I think has said one of the sentences that had the most um, immediate, I thought, ah, this uh, definition of equanimity. He said, equanimity, he said, was the ability in whatever happens, with whatever happens, startling, something new happens, something new is always happening, something that startles you happening. The ability, equanimity is the ability to say, huh, this is what's happening now. Let's see what happens next. And I love that. I just, when he said the word next, it's like such a relief. There's going to be a next. Now is this, it's this or that, it's startling, it's terrible. This isn't what I wanted to happen, but there's going to be a next. And that was so, I see a lot of people doing that, because it's so reassuring, there's going to be a next. It could be worse, the next, you don't know. But it, or it could get better. But it will be something else. And it's just, it just reminds me that it's not an isolated moment. It's a moment in time. And what I hope I'll be able to do, and I hope that that's what the, his definition encourages me to do, is to say, this is what's happening now. Let's see what happens next. First of all, it reminds me there's a next. I'm reminded that Barack Obama in his last uh, speech in office said, remember, nothing is in the end of the world until the end of the world. And it makes so much sense. This is now. Something else will happen. There'll be something, which then gives me the idea you could do something. Maybe you could do something on behalf of what's happening. I believe that. We could all do something so that next is different from what we imagine otherwise. And that, let's see. I don't know what's going to happen next. So let me see what's happening now. I just love that. So I'm going to tell you three stories. And um, this is the, the, the inveterate teacher in my bones, my mother and my, my aunt and my father. Everyone was a school teacher in my growing up. So as soon as I learn something, I have to figure out how to teach it to somebody, especially if I like it. Where's a person? I'll teach them. So the teacher in me says, I'm going to tell you three stories. And they're all three stories. They're different stories but they all are making a somewhat different point about the same thing. So maybe when I get all finished with the three stories, we'll have a little quiz. <laughs> what, was, what was the point? Okay. Oh, I have to tell you a story before that. Again, from my school teacher family. My father, I lived near the beach in Coney Island in Brooklyn. I grew up. My father and I would go to the boardwalk frequently and walk along and look out at the sea. And periodically, as it's true in all kinds of seaside towns, there are binoculars set up uh, at various points that you can get behind and put in a penny, uh, a quarter. My, who knows what we put in now? I think we put in nickels when I was growing up. And then you got 30 seconds of it would click on and you could see through the binoculars and see the... Uh, pelicans sitting on the rocks. And there were uh, like a little a step-up chair for small people to stand on. So I would stand up on the chair and look in, 
And my father would be standing behind me, and he'd say, look with both eyes, Sylvia. Keep both eyes open, and look with two eyes. Don't move this way or this way. You have to look straight on, and then you'll see what's happening out there. And I thought about it over the years of vipassana practice, and I think that's really what we're supposed to be doing, is looking straight on to see in an unconfused way what's going on. If we saw what was going on, if we really got that the Four Noble Truths are really true, and that life is really difficult and challenging for everyone, just because it's finite and because it's tenuous. It's already difficult for everybody because it's always changing. And we make a plan and it's something else. We make a plan and it's something else. And in our whole life, the question is, what do I do now? What do I do now? And what we are hoping to do here is to have enough wisdom accumulated in the mind so that when we look and we see, oh, this is, this is, I don't want this to happen. This is not pleasing to me. Can I fix this? How can I fix it? How can I help and do it? Or there's nothing I can do. Then how can I support the people around me? What can I do now? What should I do now? Our whole life, we're really doing that from the beginning. So here are three stories about well, you'll tell me when it's over what they're about. First of all, there's a story of Siddhartha Gautama, the princely person who was born of a family of repute in a, pers- a certain northern province of India, who, as an adult, somehow avoided noticing that life is very challenging and forever, and that everyone gets old and dies. I don't, it's a mythical story, but it's a very valuable myth because you all probably remember times in your life where you discovered, uh-oh, things change. Uh-oh, some things really change in a way that disturbs the mind. We get to have a, a, a lesson in, this is true about life. You can't really know. Some people grow up comfortably in a family that supports them. And so they're not really super tense about what's going to be next. They feel comfortable and supported. And then things start to happen to them. Life happens. For the Buddha, he was troubled about, uh, in legendary terms, he went out from his palace and looked around in the area around and in legendary, in the legend, he looks around and he saw an old person hobbling along, old, and he hadn't seen that before. And then he saw a sick person really in some sort of pain and really big discomfort, and that moved him. He hadn't seen that before in his mythical pre-aware moments. And then he saw a dead person all bloated and terrible looking. And then he saw fourth sight. You all know what the fourth sight was. Sometimes people forget it. The three sights are old age, sickness, and death that he didn't get before. And then he saw fourth sight. And the fourth sight was a monk walking around, serene of visage, just calmly walking around, like he could really walk through life, serene of visage, knowing what was happening, and it would be all right with you. 
somehow that image of the monk, serene in his heart, seeing the same vision of, uh oh, this is all about old age, sickness, and death. No matter how many vitamins you take and how much good luck you have, we already took a poll this morning about how many people here are going to die. Somebody, I, I can't remember who exactly it was, who said, I always knew that everybody is going to die, but I never actually thought it was going to be me. And that really is how we most of us go along until we get the first bad mammogram or the first bad blood test or the first pain here or there or someone else that we care about gets it. So he said, okay, I'm going to figure out the answer to how could that monk, in the middle of recognizing the existential dilemma of being alive, how come he's serene? So he decided to leave his home and become a monk. That's the beginning of the story. Then he practices for nine years with different teachers, teaching him all kinds of techniques of concentration and austerity. And he was a very, very diligent practitioner. And after all those years, he practiced with one teacher and another teacher in this group and another group. And after all those years, he said, this is it. Now I, I give up. I'm just going to sit down and I'm going to get the answer. And in that scene of uh, the Buddha sitting down at the base of the tree under which he was enlightened uh, is iconic. Uh, I particularly love it when uh, you, sometimes you see him sitting and you know this is the scene in which he gets enlightened. If you get kids, Buddhist kids' comic books, they're great because they are they're illustrated with the terrifying sights that the Buddha sees when he sits down. He says, okay, this is it. I'm sitting and I'm not getting up until I'm enlightened. By the way, I tell that to people sometimes. I said, you know, when I sit down sometimes, sometimes particularly I don't feel well or, you know, I don't feel strong about myself or I'm troubled by myself, I also sit down with a determination. The Buddha put down two fingers on the, on the ground next to him like that. I'm determined I'm not getting up until I'm enlightened. And I said, I do that too sometimes when I sit down. And usually when I say that, there's a little bit of a tee-hee-hee, everybody laughs. Like, you don't really think that if you put down your two fingers, you are going to get completely enlightened. I don't know if I don't think that, but why not put down the two fingers and say, I have a right to be here and I have a right also to have an insight that will be enlightening to me. Why not? You don't get extra points for humility. You get extra points for diligence. Anyway, here he comes and he sits down in his place. He sits down and immediately the forces of Mara, which are the forces of everything that confuses the mind, come galloping through the sky. That's why a children's coloring book is the best. They have representations of warriors on horses with spears and arrows and all kinds of war symbols come galloping out of here and out of the east and then out of the west come all kinds of sensual, whatever you can imagine, sensual images because Mara, who is trying to disturb his mind, sends, first of all, things to frighten him, but he's not frightened, and sends then erotic kinds of, of 
temptations for him to get involved in, well, you know. But he doesn't. The, the frightening ones and the erotic ones, he sits there, and that's when he puts the fingers down. And he says, I see you are ma- your armies, Mara, and I am not afraid. And he puts his fingers down here. He's going to sit there. And he sits. And he is so filled with equanimity and so stable in his equanimity, unshakable equanimity, that he's is able to behold this whole scene. And he can, therefore, because his mind is so equanimous, he can so rest in loving kindness because his heart is mind is even and he sees that this is just a manifestation and that he can just meet it with goodwill. So he meets it with unshakable loving kindness, unshakable goodwill. And it says in the text that his unshakable goodwill went out from him and vanquished the armies of Mara and all these conquering forces that were coming from the east and all these erotic forces coming from here, they all turned into flower petals and fell on the floor all around him. And all the world around him was covered with flowers. Isn't that what you love that story? That's great. All the world is covered with flower petals. And he is sitting there, and he's got unshakable equanimity. I, because if we had unshakable equanimity, we'd say this life is the way it is. You get born, you get older, you get sick, you die, it happens to everybody. Sometimes you live long, sometimes you live short. That's just how it happens. It's what happens if you're a person. What happens to anything, if you're a person or an animal, things that get born die, and that's how it is. You can be sad about it, but not outraged about it. Say, this is just the way it is. Not to be outraged at life. It's the rage about the life, about the what happens. And it's the pushing back against it. The first noble truth is that life comes with pain and difficulty for everyone. And the second noble truth is suffering is what happens when we don't accept it. You say, no, no, this can't be happening. This shouldn't be happening. The third noble truth is we don't have to meet it with aversion and with fighting back. We can meet it with wisdom. My friend Martha, who's dead now probably 15 years, uh, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, maybe 50-ish, just just after she had married Joel, and everything was happy. And very soon after, she didn't feel well, went to the emergency room, and they took the scans, and she had pancreas cancer. And at that time, there really weren't any responses. There are some now, but it's not a good illness to have. And one time, over the course of the two years in which she got sicker and then ultimately died, we would talk all the time, and she'd say, she said on one notable occasion, she said, you know, so I'm not being a very good Buddhist about this business, what's going on with me. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I know that you're supposed to be open to the experience 
whatever it is, and I'm not open to the experience. I said, Martha, don't be ridiculous. Who's going to be open to the experience of pancreatic cancer? Just don't be mad at yourself for not being open to it. She said, well, truth to tell, I think I am mad at myself for being, for having it. And so well, then don't be mad at yourself for doing that. It's just happening. At least don't be mad at yourself for getting mad at yourself. <laughs> she said, well, you know, truth to tell, I am mad at myself for getting mad at myself. She said, because, you know, sometime I'm walking around and I'm saying to myself, why me? Why me? Why is this happening to me? I ate right. Nobody in my family has this. I exercise. I meditate. Why me? She said, I'm, when I'm thinking that, I'm in a lot of pain. And she said, and then suddenly I'll think to myself, why not me? Pancreas hap cancer happens to people, and I'm a person. So it's happening to me. She said, it doesn't make me any happier. I'm not any more pleased about, being, about dying. She said, but I'm not suffering so much. I said, why not me? This is okay. This is what's happening. I don't like it, but that's what's happening. The difference between not suffering and suffering is fighting with what's happening, not being able to say, this is what's happening. I just, at that moment that I said that, I remembered that um, Ajahn Sumedho was here in this room. He's a venerable man. He's a year or so older than I am and still alive and teaching in, uh, in England at Amaravati. And he said, the whole thing is to be able to say, it's like this, and then what? The last time I saw him, he was giving a talk up at um, uh, uh, a monastery up in Mendocino County. And uh, he was passing through there and being a guest, and he agreed to do... Uh, a, a meeting with people invited in the community, and a lot of people went up there, and I did too. And uh, somebody amongst us, he came into the room, and everybody bowed. And, uh, one of the people who had driven up with me uh, said, he said, who has a question for me? And uh, one of the people that I had driven up with said, with homage, etc., she said, I, I heard that you were in the United States uh, now, because he doesn't travel very much, because your sister in Vancouver just died. Is that true? He said, yeah, it's true. She, he, she said, how was that for you? He said, he paused. He said, it was terrible. It was really terrible. So somebody dies, you really feel really terrible. He didn't say, and here I am, and I'm here, and I'm talking to you, and I'm glad to see you. But that was all implicit. He was there. So it isn't that everybody dies, so it's just, you don't have to think about it. Everybody dies, and it's terrible. But it's not agonizing. You can tell that what he's saying is, this is a thing that happens. It doesn't take away all pain and loss. It takes away the suffering of extra loss. This shouldn't have happened. It did happen. It happened that his sister was quite old, as he is too. But it happens to young people too. It happens. Everything happens to everybody. 
we look around and we keep our eyes open. I have this um, fantasy sometimes about when you walk in the street, especially when you walk in a big city like New York City and you look around and you see people with all degrees of physical ability and, uh, and disability. And uh, I also think about the fact that probably if we don't see the, the uh, challenges on the people who don't have obvious physical manifestations of it, but I think to myself, if everybody had a big sign over their head, I lost my job yesterday, my partner broke up with me yesterday, I've been given six months to live because I have pancreas cancer. If everybody was carrying around a sign on the top of their head, we would all slow down, we'd hold the door for everybody, we'd be much nicer for everybody, we'd give people a hand up over the curb, everybody could carry around a sign. Could you make a sign? You could, everybody could make a sign. Sometimes when I sit in New York subways, I look at all the people and I imagine what sign could be over their head. You don't know what's the sign. But when I do that, the great help it is for me is it takes me out of my own story that I might have fallen prey to and think, oh, this terrible thing is happening to me. Everybody's got something happening to them. It doesn't cure my thing or fix my problem, but it makes it a shared problem of being a person. It makes me feel a communality with other people. My friend Norman Fisher wrote a book. His last book was called When I Meet You on the Path, I Bow. And he's talking about a particular culture in West Africa where the, the um, custom is when you meet someone on the path, you're walking along and they're walking along, that you bow. And sometimes in some countries in India, this means namaste. Or, um, but they say some other word, but the, the meaning of that word, according to Norman, is I'm bowing because I see you there and I recognize that you're a human being. And like a human being, I recognize that you've got all kinds of things that are hard for you and maybe some wonderful, glorious things that you're happy about too. But whatever you've had up to now in your life, some glorious, wonderful things and some really sad things, and maybe they're going on now. When I see you on the path, I recognize that you put on your shoes this morning and, or got out of bed and put on your clothes, and you're out here walking on the path that you're still here being a person. My grandfather, who never learned to read or write in any language, used to say, who lived to be 98, and I knew him well, used to say, it's very hard to be a person. It's very hard to be a person. What he meant is it's very hard to be a decent person. Very hard to be a decent person and not haul off and hit people or be mad at them or get mad at them forever and say, I'm never going to talk to you and do all kinds of inept things that make their life worse and your life worse. Too. It's very hard to be a person. So the end of the... I want to tell you three stories. Let me make sure. The end of the um, Buddha story is at the, in the morning after he sat there and dispelled all these forces of confusion and they're all flowers around him. 
he gets up and he spent some time there. He says, I, uh, I got it. I now understand the causes of suffering and the end of suffering, which over the course of his whole life he taught endlessly going here and there. And the causes he summed up in those noble truths that there are four of, and I just told you two, that life is difficult. Life comes with pain and suffering for everybody. We make it worse often by the inept ways that we respond to what's happening rather than having, um, what do they call it? Uh, people are uh, untra- have untrained minds, and so they fall prey to being mad at this. shouldn't be happening, it shouldn't happen. They're the bad guys, I'm the good guys. That's an untrained mind. He said, a trained mind says, this is what's happening. Wow. And what can I do to respond? How can I help? That, that not just what's happening and, okay, I got it, it's happening to me, but what can I do to help? What's a, what's a response that is salubrious both for me and for somebody else? Because that's what ends the suffering. If we connect with people, when we bow to people, and what we mean is, I see that you're a person, and I know, and I see that you got up this morning and you're still here. May you be well, or whatever that. Recognizing the noble thing, to, the noble thing to be a person and keep on going. I like that the end of the Buddha story. Well, it doesn't end for years after that, but. He stayed around that place and consolidated, they say, his vision. And then he went off, the story goes, to begin to go here and to there and to teach. And as he left uh, that spot, uh, it's said in the stories that he meets the five monks, the five monastics with whom he had been hanging out, if that was a word for monastics, going to different teachers and practicing with different teachers. And he had left them to go off on his own when he sat down. And the story is, I love this, that they said to each other, the equivalent of, here comes that good-for-nothing monk, Gautama. He, didn't, he gave up that ascetic life that he, we had. He started to eat. He, he gave up the ascetic life. Let's not talk to him. And it says in that same story that as they came nearer to him, he was so bathed in a glowing glow that they said, wait a minute, something is different with monk Atama. And they stopped, and it said that he then preached the sermon of setting into motion the turning in the wheel, which is his first teaching. So that's the story of... That's that story. So the principal... I'm going to say the principal thing to... You know what the I'm going to ask you, what's the principal thing? I'm not going to tell you the answer. Okay. <laughs> Two more stories, and you'll tell me that what the, what, what's, the, what's the abiding truth. Story true. Fast forward <laughs> from 2,500 years ago to early 20th century. No, 1992 or three, I'm not sure. But I had the great, great fortune of being invited to be part of a delegation of 26 people. Half of them were Americans, a lot of British, English-speaking Dharma teachers. Uh, So I am one. 
And uh, along with 26 other people, including my friend and teacher Jack Hornfield, were convening in Bodh Gaya to have a week of meetings with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. So it was very exciting to know that that was happening. Um, I was trying to think of the date. It's probably 1992. Anyway, we went, and one of the people in the delegation was a person who died 10 years ago, uh, old. He was, at that time, the senior prelate in Cambodia in the this monastic tradition, the Buddhist monastic tradition. And uh, he was a little man. His name was uh, Mahagosananda. Maha is a designation of praise. Uh, Mahagosananda. And we're all gathered in the Imperial Hotel. Everybody has flown in from here and there in Delhi. And we're going to take the night train to um, Patankot in the north of India. From It's an overnight train, and then we're going to take taxis, which is a whole other story uh, in India, to Bodh Gaya, and we're going to be there for a week. So here I am in the uh, lobby of the Imperial Hotel, and we've just flown 15 hours, 18 hours from San Francisco to there. And everybody in the community that was convening there, everybody had their luggage because we were just passing through and getting on the night train. Everybody went to eat dinner. And um, for whatever reason, I decided not to eat dinner. Maybe I was excited from the, for the traveling or whatever. But I was left sitting alone in the lobby there but not really alone, across from me, sitting on a sofa, just about as far away as you are. Here's Mahagosananda sitting on the sofa with his legs under him, like tucked under him, for looking like he's meditating. And in Cambodian robes are like the uh, Tibetan, not like the Tibetan monastics, they're more like the brown robes that Theravada monks wear, they wrap around robes, but uh, they're bright orange. And he was sitting in here with his bright orange rose, robes and his round head and smiling. And I, uh, I noticed that over on the side there was a tea shop. And I know that I wasn't eating dinner because I didn't feel like it. Mahagosananda can't eat dinner because in the tradition... You don't eat afternoon. So he's, but he, I knew that he could drink tea. So I look at him and I say, Venerable, uh, can I invite you to tea? So he said, Yes, thank you, ma'am. So we get up and he and I walk in the tea, tea shop together and he sits down. And I order tea and uh, he can't carry money, but I can. So I order tea for him. And we're sitting there. And I said to him, you know, uh, we haven't met before, but I know that you were six months ago, whenever, in the April, six months prior to that, that date, I know that uh, you were in um, Auschwitz at a ceremonial opening of the gates 50 years after the liberation of Auschwitz. 
I said, I know because a friend of mine is a rabbi and she was there. And she said that you all fi filed up in a parade. There were a, a lot of Jewish dignitaries, but there were a lot of peace activists from all over the world, and Gosananda is one of them. So he's lined up in there. And on that day, they open the doors and everybody marches out very ceremoniously and turns west. And it's kind of like let carry the torch to the Olympics. You know, somebody carries it to somebody who carries it to somebody who carries it to somebody. That march went un... People left and people joined it. And people certainly didn't swim across to Japan. But one way or another, the march was continuous with people joining and leaving and joining and leaving until it came to Hiroshima on the 6th of August, which was the anniversary of the use of the first atomic bomb. And I knew that he was there as well, that he was at the Auschwitz opening and he was at Hiroshima. I said I, I had a friend who was at Auschwitz, and she told me that you were there. I said, what have you been doing since then? So he said, well, uh, I have been working on trying to get a universal ban on landmines because it's still true from all the different fighting in different places that there are still landmines that people are stepping on from conflicts long ago. And I would like there to be a universal ban on the, on, certainly on the development of manufacture of landmines. So I said, oh, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Here he is in his little orange robes. And I said, is there anything I can do to help? So he said, well, yes, you can. He said, and he reaches into his sleeve. You know, this is a sleeve of a big rectangle that he's wrapped around himself. It's not like a coat. It's a sleeve of a robe. He reaches up his arm in his sleeve. He takes out a scroll. A petition. He said, I have a petition here that people have been signing. If you'd like to sign this when it's all filled out, you can send it to the address on the bottom. And I'm hoping to get you know, thousands and thousands of signatures. And I was so moved by the fact that I had asked my friend, um, <laughs> I, I'd asked my friend, what did you think? She said, oh, I met Mahagosananda. I said, I'm going, to, I'm going to Delhi and I'm going to meet Mahagosananda. She said, yeah, I met him. He didn't say very much. All he said all the time is, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. And I thought to myself, oh, Sheila's one of my best friends, so I mean, doesn't, I'm not teasing her or talking. I am a little bit, but <laughs> not, not certainly in a bad way. But I thought, she said, all he said was, and I thought, that's all you have to say. If he didn't say anything else your whole life, other than may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering, you'd be okay. That would be it. If you really did it. And here is Gosananda with it up its sleeve, really. We always say that, what, what trick have you got up your sleeve? He's got a petition. So he said, what are you doing? He said, that these days I'm getting names on my petition. He had been trem tremendously active in Cambodia when there was strife in that part of the world, going around displaced persons' camps and teaching people metta, teaching people 
how to hold their hearts with loving kindness for other people. That's story number two. Story number three happened 37 years ago, 36 years ago. And um, I was it was late in the afternoon and I was getting ready to go teach a retreat, to open a retreat that night. We didn't have, we didn't have this hall at that point. So we were teaching, I was with James Barras and uh, Jack Cornfield teaching a retreat in a monastery in at Dominican College in San Rafael, not far from here. I was getting ready to go to open the retreat, and uh, my youngest daughter arrived at my house and said, uh, how would you and Dad like to take me and my husband out for dinner tonight? I said, oh, I'd love to do that, but I can't do that because I have to go teach this retreat. I'm supposed to be there. I said, really? Are you sure you don't want to go to take us to dinner tonight? I said, well, I just said I can't go because I have to go to teach this retreat. I said, you really, you really can't just come and celebrate that you're going to be a grandmother for the first time. So I got hysterical. I mean, what would you do? You get hysterical. Ah, I can't believe it. Ah. I remember exactly that my phone rang at that point, and we, we still had phones, you know, in those days, 35 years ago. And I pick up the phone. I remember it was my friend Alta calling, and I, I realized, and I said, Alta, I can't talk. I'm hysterical. Uh, Emmy's having a baby. I'll call you back later. I hang up. And I went to teach the retreat and opened it that night. I was hysterical. I, I tell you that story particularly because I don't want to. I want to dispel the, the the idea that in order to see clearly and make a wise decision, you have to be a contemplative that doesn't get excited. That I I want to think. I want to say that over my years of practice, I think my palette of emotional response has gotten wider and. It's less worrisome because you get whatever you do, you get hysterical, you get tremendously despairing, and you go and you open the class because it's the next thing to do. Is that a good story? Are they good stories? What is... Okay, now here's the homework. <laughs> Who wants to say, what's the, what's the light motif? What was the lesson? in all of those things. Go for it, it's not that hard. There you go. I'll repeat it, yeah. Maha goes Ananda. What did you do that night? 
<laughs> well, how, who wants to take a stab at the last one? What is it? What did I want to dispel the notion that, Bonnie, what notion were I trying to dispel with the story about Emmy? That in order to have, there you go, in order for the wise response to happen does not require, go, what's your name? Equanimity. <laughs> that you could be hysterical. I'll call you back later, Al. I'm hysterical. And then you call back later. In the meantime, you go and you open the retreat. <coughs> I wanted to be sure. that the leitmotif that goes through them all is that what makes you able to do those things, how could Gosananda walk around in, in Cambodia where people are refugees, having been unsettled by the terrible political uprisings there and the terrible fighting that went on there, and be chanting the Metta Sutta and calming people down, and having seen all that tragedy, and still have enough heart to spread enough compassion in that community to have people have heart be able to continue and loved him. So I had a feeling that when I heard the stories about how people grouped around him as he walked through those refugee camps, and I thought about, I also met him, and... Uh, there was something about him. Just like I'd like to think it's just like uh, the Buddha with his uh, uh, fellow monks that he meets up with and they're just talking bad on him and then they say, wait a minute, something is different about Gosananda. He looks different now. He's radiating some kind of poise, some kind of equanimity. I wanted to dispel the notion that in order to be able to have equanimity, you have to be a calm person or a tranquil person. If this practice required, if clear seeing re required being calm or tranquil, I'd be in the wrong place because I'm not either of those things. I'm easily startled, easily startled. Not so much now as I was 30 years ago, 40 years ago. But I'm sure, if they, I'm sure they didn't have Abcar tests when I was born. But, you know, where they put a baby down and they do like this and the baby's supposed to do like that. And they do, because when you startle, you do like that. And I used to imagine when I first heard about that, that probably when they did that on me, I was really startled. Because I'm, I'm easily startleable. I have the kind of mind also that when something is amiss, my mind immediately catastrophizes it. it. Must anybody has that here? Who has that? It's a bear, isn't it? No matter how much you know, this is a gene. This is a neurological loop. That's a pain in the neck to have. Some people they say, "Why did you think that?" You know, that every every person who's arriving home late is not at the bottom of a ravine. <laughs> that, uh, but. Not if you have this kind of mind. How many people? You fess up. Who has it? Then you came to the right place. I'm going to give you the bad news 
and the good news, first of all. The bad news is it's not going to get better. The good news is it's going to keep happening. It just does. It's the way the mind processes it. It's not. It's going to stop bothering you because you won't believe it. Some the 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 you'll be in the airport and they'll say, "Ladies and gentlemen, can I have your attention, please?" And your mind will say, "Ah, the plane I'm waiting for has just crashed." Anybody could do that kind of a thing. Anybody has that? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and but yeah, the mind thinks that ah. What calamity has happened? And the next line after that, ladies and gentlemen, can I have your attention, please, is what? Please keep your eyes on your luggage at all times. That's what they say all the time. They've been saying it that way for decades. Keep your luggage in sight all the time. Never mind. They say, ladies and gentlemen, ah, because the mind does like this. And I've gotten really so that I've, it amuses me. I'm, not, I'm really hardly frightened by it. But I, I'm interested that it keeps happening. And I think that it's a certain neurology that, you know, okay. But I don't believe it. And so I live my life. I arrive at the place. You could probably, I arrive at a place where I've made up with somebody we're going to meet. My, my husband, who died three years ago, we did a lot of traveling together. And I'd say to him in a foreign city, I'd say, okay, you go, you want to look at pianos in this piano manufacturing district, and I want to look at what's on the other side of the bridge. So I'll do that. We'll meet here in one hour right in front of this door. I come back to 55 minutes I'm there, you know, so, so that he won't have to worry. He's not there in 55 minutes. Then you think, what if he's not here in five minutes? Not even the time up yet. You could even start before. Is this, is this familiar to anybody? No, he's not even here yet, but you can start. What could have happened to him? He could have gotten lost. He's an older man. He could have got mugged. He could have got dragged in an alley. And then he strolls around the corner and he's there. But so it's completely just exhausting to the mind. I say everybody's got this. Do not be embarrassed about it. It's a neuronal squiggle. It's a, that's all it is. And you just have to make, you know, I think to myself sometimes, it's a good thing that I have that. You know, I'm a, I'm a pretty good writer, and I'm inventive, and I think up good stories. Maybe I wouldn't be so inventive if I didn't have this kind of a mind. Maybe it's good for me. I'm not going so far as to say I like it. <laughs> I don't like it. But that's what I've got to be able to say. Well, my teacher and friend, Joseph Goldstein, used to say about something like that, He'd say he might say to me, for instance, uh, "Boy, he might, you know, I'm. Uh, I could say to myself, I'm. Uh, uh, I'm an easy. I fret easily, and the sky is blue, and I'm short. And they could all have the same valence. I don't feel embarrassed about that. I'm an easily drawn into fretting. Uh oh. Uh oh." doesn't go away, but it stops bothering you. And that's a great relief. So here's your stuff again. That we don't have to be held hostage by it or tell a story about it. All the meanwhile, I think it's discovering that both how it works, that the mind has that predisposition to do that. Who knows why? It's very interesting. 
my friend Sharon Salzberg and I used to talk about the fact that um, we, of the five different um, hindrance energies, hindrances insofar as they hinder the ability to mind, for the mind to see clearly, the five hindrance energies, she says she has the one um, more of, she doesn't like problematic situations. It's, it's a, the, the nasty name for it is sloth. She's not a slothful person, but ah, uh, don't have to do that. And uh, mine is fretting. Uh oh, uh oh, uh oh. And we would uh, teach about when we're teaching together. We teach about the, the phone could ring for both of us and say, "Ring, ring." Hello, this is Pierre, so and so, calling from the south of France, and we're planning a. a Vipassana retreat uh, next April when the heather is in bloom and uh, we'd like to bring you over for two weeks to teach a, a Vipassana retreat in a chateau in Aix-en-Provence. <laughs> so I am already pulling out the drawers to pack <laughs> while they're saying, and Sharon is thinking, such a long schlep to, to X. You have to fly to Paris, and you have to get on the TGV, and then you have to go all the way south. And and the important thing is, if it were the right circumstances, we'd both go. Because if it was, if it was, you know, forty people, sure, you know, when we were younger. Recently, we would. We are remembering. I am remembering that we were when when we were younger. Uh, I said to her one day, um, what do you do? What do you think we're going to be doing when we're old, Sharon? And she said, um, I don't know. She said, probably we'll be sitting around praying for people. And I, I liked that very much. That's exactly what she said. We'll be sitting around praying for people. And there was something about that. And I think it's the word around, like sitting around it's kind of relaxed, you know, like not sitting and praying for people, sitting around casually, like it would be our way of life. And I hope it is, because it's it's one way of saying we would have both habituated our minds to may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. Enough of the time. It, if I habituate my mind to that, which I hope I do more and more, then I won't stay as deluded as I sometimes get into. I won't worry about things as painfully as I do. I am very concerned about what's going on in the world situation now. Oh, I didn't bring that. Um, I had two things that I was going to bring to show you, and I think I forgot. Oh, too bad. One of them, <laughs> one of them was a cartoon from the latest New Yorker magazine of, um, let's see, I'm going to get it right. Someone is sitting at a computer at a work situation with somebody behind her, so they come back to work after the long weekend, I guess because it's the latest New Yorker. And the person at the computer is saying, 
After a long and leisurely four-day holiday, it's kind of hard to get back into the swing of agonizing about the impending end of the world. <laughs> but you know what? I was close enough on that so, so that you got it. I had such a lesson on the first day that this current terrible crisis in the Middle East happened, day after October 7th or 8th. My uh, grandson who lives in Ecuador had come to visit the United States. He came, anyway, he came because his business is in the United States. For whatever reason, he and his wife and my two of my great-grandchildren flew up from Ecuador and were in a rented apartment in San Francisco. And uh, I was driving in. I'm the great-grandmother and the grandmother and I were driving in together to see them and be with them. And I hadn't seen them in almost a year. And um, I was quite bewildered and upset about what was going on in the Middle East and, and worried about it. And we got there, and here are these children, and we brought, we, you know, we brought presents and books. We were all reading and talking and laughing, and look who walks all of a sudden. And, and we were sitting down and eating some takeout food, and I suddenly had the thought, I forgot to worry about the Middle East. For a half hour, I haven't worried about them at all. And I also had the thought, and it's just the same in the Middle East, but by my not being preoccupied with it, didn't change what was happening there at all. And it was just such a, I didn't feel like I slothed off and that I didn't, I just realized that it was surprising that in the middle of a, of a dire situation, I have lots of friends who live in Israel, I'm really upset for the, for the Palestinian community. Uh, it's, a, it's a terrible situation there. And in the middle, I could forget, and I could just be having dinner with my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren. And it was so up, uplifting to me that we don't at any moment need to be held hostage by the world. You know, the world is doing what it's doing, and I'm as activist that I can be in the world. But I don't have to be swallowed up by it. And that was somehow a moment of, whoa, look at that. Surprised. There is this right now. Like there is this retreat right now. None of us is reading the mail and reading the email and seeing what's going on. We can in this time be really working on equanimity and goodwill. Somebody pointed out correctly this morning, it would be good if we uh, really translated uh, every term that we use. So I'm just going to go back to upeka, which is equanimity, which comes with normally in the sequence of metta, oh, that's what we chanted this morning, metta, karuna, mudita, upeka. And metta is defined as a generally goodwill towards people. Don't know anything about them. A general goodwill like the kind of thing that Norman is talking about, where he says you greet people on the, on the path and you bow. 
because you do. They're a person, and you wish them well. And the wishing well does so many things to your interior. I am the principal beneficiary of my own goodwill. I have a, a page, by the way. This is not the page. Anyway, I have a page. Oh, on one side of the page, I said, this is everything that I've really learned in 45 years that I absolutely know. And the first thing on that page is I am the principal beneficiary of my own goodwill. I am the principal beneficiary of my own goodwill. If I only knew that, that would be good. It would really... That's enough. We're going to talk about that at another time. But I am the principal beneficiary of my own goodwill. That's what mudita is. If you walk around on the street, if you go on the subway in New York or on Toronto or any place else, you don't know the people. You know that they're just like you. And they have troubles and not troubles and birthday parties and births and weddings and divorces. They've got stuff. And they've got a life full of stuff. I just thought of the old and trite and Maybe, and it's it's the opening scene of Annie Hall, uh, which is the first big movie with um, Diane Keaton and and Woody Woody Allen, and it's voiceover, and Woody Allen's voice is saying, "You know the story about the two old women in rocking chairs on the porch of a hotel in the Catskills Mountains, and they're rocking." And one of them is saying, the food in this hotel is so bad. The other one says, you're right. And such small portions. (laughs) And it's a long time ago. That's what we have. Our lives are very, very complicated, and we have a lot of pain and, 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 and disappointment in them. And we want more of them. You know, it's bizarre, but we do. So may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. Karuna, which is the second one, is the inclination of the heart to help. I don't think you have to think about it. When, uh, when someone falls down in the street, people rush over. They don't have to stand there and think, what should I do now? And, you know, think it over. I remember once seeing news footage of a plane. This is 30 years ago. I was somewhere on a ski vacation and watching it on a, on a television of a plane that crashed into the Potomac as cars were going over. Do you remember that? And somebody, a number of people, jumped out of their cars, whipped off their shoes, and jumped in the Potomac. Ice was floating in the Potomac to get people, and people were saved from these people who jumped in. They didn't think about it, they just did. And they didn't do it if they they weren't good swimmers or or they were frail. But what can I do? The people who could do that jumped in, the people who could do something else did something else. But there's an automatic inclination of the heart So we'll talk more about karuna, because I actually think that all of them are exactly the same, metta, karuna. Mudita is when you get excited about somebody else's great feat. 
someone was just telling me about a movie, I've forgotten the name of it, about a woman who was the first woman to swim from, where was it? From Florida to where? She flew she, from Cuba to Florida, and uh, she tried and failed, and then she did it again. And anyway, we see, and I, I, I read that, or I think about that. I wanted to see the movie. I will eventually. And I get so excited about it. It lifts me up. I'm an all right swimmer, but I can't swim from here to Cuba. You know, <laughs> and, and, and I never could when I was young. But you get so excited that somebody can. And it's wonderful. It's like that human beings have a, a sense of connection, as if that person is me, or as if they're my child, or my sister, or my cousin. And to be excited for somebody else without needing it to be for me. To feel compassion and the urge to help with it not needing to be anyone you know. To just have goodwill on anyone that you know or don't know. And equanimity is to be able to have all of the above at the right time. I think they're all the same. They're all a balanced mind that says what's needed now that can go this way or this way or this way or this way. I wanted to tell you a poem that I've been carrying around with me to close for a couple of weeks. Because I'm everybody that, well, I'll tell you the poem and then you'll see. It's by Father Judah, who's um, a um, pediatrician, I think in Denver or somewhere in Colorado. Palestinian by the name. My daughter wouldn't hurt a spider that had nested between her bicycle handles. For two weeks, she waited until it left of its own accord. If you tear down the web, I said, it will simply know this isn't a place to call home and you'd get to go biking. She said, that's how others become refugees, isn't it? So you did the right thing because everybody I've read it to so far has said, oh. The amazing thing about human beings is we're touched and we're touchable. It's not all the same to us that people fall into a river or people swim to Cuba. We feel awe or we feel yay or we feel whatever as if they're us. And what a big, great privilege that is because then you don't feel you're alone in the world having this life with everybody else. Honestly, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. Thank you very much. Go and have dinner. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.